John Aaron! All right, thank you, Mr. Tim Lovett. Give it up for Tim Lovett. Keep it going, huh? on everybody it's your boy johnny eras and i am back with another edition of the views from the john podcast and if you've been paying attention and chances are you have not your boy hasn't been around in a while and uh here i am i have resurfaced like a submarine where have I been? Well, the last we spoke, I was a couple of days away from leaving for New York City, and I left for New York City. And while I was in the city, I did not have my podcasting equipment with me, so I could not do a podcast. I had uh, probably the best five days I've ever had in my life. I had an absolute fucking blast um, doing comedy. And seeing comedy, it it was it was five days of just nonstop comedy. Either I was on stage doing it, or I was at another show watching and learning. Um, so that's all I did from the time I woke up to the time I got back to the hotel. It was comedy, 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 and it just furthered my love with the art that is stand up comedy. So um, yeah, I couldn't do a podcast while I was in the city. I had a great fucking trip, tons of stuff to get to and talk about, but the reason I haven't done a podcast in so long is when I came home from New York City, it'll be two weeks ago in a couple days, I got the flu. I woke up uh, that Wednesday morning feeling like ass. I had to pack, shower, check out of my hotel catch an Uber down to Penn Station, then get on my Amtrak, who I will never take again. Amtrak is fucking horrible. Um, And yeah, during the five-hour train ride back to the Boston area, uh, every second that went by, I could just tell I was nosediving for flu hell, and that's exactly where I ended up. So I am literally... Even though I came down with the flu 12 days ago, 13 days ago, I am just starting to feel back to normal. I don't know if I had the flu, then I beat it, and then got another cold on top of that. It almost seems like it what happened, or or I don't know. I don't know if a, if a flu or a cold is supposed to last this long, but the first three days, I had a super high fever. I must have had 30 different layers of clothes on and a blanket around me and a winter hat. The heat cranked up to 75 in my apartment, and I literally felt like I was submerged under Antarctica. That's how cold I was. I was, I was, I was so, I, I had never been that cold in my entire life. Um, never been that sick before. Well, I've I've been sicker than that, but with like stomach bug type shit. But to just I, I don't I don't know. That is it, it was so hardcore. I was so cold. My fever was nearly a hundred and three, and everything in my body hurt. My liver hurt. My eyes hurt. My eyelashes hurt. My fingernails were sensitive. I'm talking. Every single body part, my hair follicles hurt, 
everything hurt. I don't know what it's like to be run over by like a steamroller, but I, I think that was probably about the closest to it. I literally felt like I was hit by a steamroller and then I was submerged under ice water with a fever. Couldn't eat, couldn't sleep, couldn't breathe, just absolute fucking agony. So that's what I've been dealing with since I got home from New York City. And I've just started in the last three, four days to feel more myself. And so yeah, it's literally taken me this long to get back from New York City, to get over the hardcore flu I have, and then to have enough time in a window in my current living situation to have enough quiet in the house to do a podcast. So that's where I've been. But I I did have a number of my fans, and I can't believe I can say that I have fans now. That's so fucking awesome. I had a number of you reach out to me through private messages across social media asking if I was okay, how my trip was, where I've been. Um, I cannot tell you how much that means to me because I've got friends that haven't even checked up on me since I've gotten back into this, uh, back into the Boston area. But yet I have fans out there from halfway across the world checking up on me. That's fucking awesome. I cannot tell you, I can't put into words how much I appreciate every single supporter I have in my life that is listening to this and, and has supported me since day one. I can't tell you how much it means to me because there literally are no words in the dictionary to describe my admiration and how much I love you for supporting me. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. So that's where I've been. You can probably tell my voice is still a little hoarse. I'm still a little uh, pony. <laughs> Isn't that what a pony is? Is this, the, is this a miniature horse? Am I right about that or am I wrong? just shows how stupid I am. I don't know. Isn't a a pony a miniature horse? So yes, my voice is a pony. I still have a frog in my throat. What is it? What what is with that saying now that I'm thinking about it? You got a frog in your throat. You're feeling a little hoarse. Why are we comparing our throats to animals like frogs and horses? Isn't that animal shaming? Should I hashtag that out? We should get rid of that saying you have a frog in their throat because it's it's uh, it's anti-species or something. Jesus. All right. So, yes, that's where I was. I was in New York City, so I couldn't podcast. And then when I got home, I came home with the flu. And uh, some people even accused me of having the coronavirus. And I'm like, no, I traveled to New York City, people, not China. I don't have the fucking coronavirus, okay? Uh, So that's where I've been. I've been unable to podcast because of uh, my trip and my sickness. But I have a whole lot to talk about. Because I had an amazing weekend. Came across an amazing... Just so much shit to get to. So let's dive right into it. So what did I do in New York City? I went to New York City, like I said, to do comedy. Um, Every night I was there. I was there Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And... From the mid-afternoon into the 9, 10, 11 o'clock hour, I was doing stand-up all over the city. That's the great thing about New York City, is if you're a new comic, or even if you're an experienced comic, there is somewhere to get up on a stage and tell your dick and shit jokes every hour on the hour all over Manhattan. Whether it's lower Manhattan, midtown, uptown... 
West Side, East Side, Queens, Staten Island, even Brooklyn I went into. Uh, so just there's just clubs everywhere. So you can get up like 50 times a week at minimum. In the area of the country I'm living at now, outside of Boston, I'm lucky if I can get up three times a week. And when you live in New York City, if you're not getting up five nights or five times a day, you got problems. Okay? There is no shortage of places to do stand-up in New York City, even if you're not being booked. So that's why I went. And when I wasn't on stage, when all the open mics would close, I would go see a show. Saturday, Sunday night, I went and saw Will, Sil- Will Silvance and Dave Attell. Those were the two guys I wanted to see. Will hosted both of the shows I went to at the Comedy Cellar on Saturday and Sunday night, and David Tell headlined. I wanted to see those two specifically. Then uh, that Monday night was the Patrice O'Neill benefit at the New York City Center, and um, there was a special guest that was not on the bill who absolutely murdered. And uh, I wanted to talk about that, that that next. So the New York City Center show was unbelievable. It was the eighth annual Patrice O'Neill benefit that Bill Burr puts on. Bill Burr and Patrice were best friends. Patrice passed away a little over nine years ago from complications that arose from his type 2 diabetes. And this was the eighth annual benefit. Every single dollar from that show went directly to Patrice's family. So... Um, and they probably had the best lineup of any show that they've done for Patrice, and this being the eighth year that they've done it. Um, I think it's the best comedy show uh, literally every year on the East Coast is the Patrice O'Neill Benefit. If you've never gone, go in 2020. Um, actually, no, go in 2021. They won't have it again till January 2021. But anyways, um, Bill Burr headlined... But before Bill Burr came out, a special guest came out. And who was it? It was none other than Louis C.K. Yes, Louis. Louis is back. Louis was not on the bill, but he came out and did, I think, 12 minutes. And I'm telling you, from the instant he came out on stage, the instant he came out on stage, all 2,300 people in that theater rose to their feet, standing ovation, deafeningly loud. And then he absolutely murdered with his new material for 12 minutes, and then he left to an even louder standing ovation. And then, of course, when Bill Burr came out, another thunderous standing ovation for Bill Burr. So yeah, um, I've never seen Louis C.K. I've seen all of his stand-up. I've seen his show Louis when it was on. Uh, you know, I've been watching Louis for years, but I've never seen him in person. So to see Louis come out to that thunderous amount of applause after he was in some trouble a few years ago, uh, he's he's back, people, and he's funnier than ever. So that was a awesome surprise. Uh, what else, what else, what else, what else? And then Tuesday night, my last night in the city, um, again, I started off my day doing multiple spots across the city, and then Jessica Kirsan, who is a good friend of mine, at least on social media, 
Um, she is one of the biggest comics I talk to on a semi-daily basis. She's that cool. I met her once in person when she did a show right here in my own hometown back in September. And ever since then, I've been talking to her through private messages, uh, mostly through Instagram. And we know each other very well now. And uh, her and I were supposed to hook up Tuesday night in the city. Uh, she had a show that was put on by All Things Comedy. Ari Shafir was supposed to be headlining. Jessica Kirsten was on the bill along with Paul Verzi and Dan Soder. And uh, Jessica put me on her guest list. But unfortunately, that night she had to cancel her set because she had a sinus infection. So I didn't get to hang out with Jessica again. But she got me into the show at the stand uh, Tuesday night for free. And that also happened to be the exact night that Ari Shafir was supposed to headline. And he got thrown off of the bill because of all the death threats that were phoned in to The Stand and the New York Comedy Club because of what Ari said about Kobe Bryant. And we'll get into that later. Um, I will defend a comic's right or anybody's right to say whatever they want. We live in a country that allows us and affords us the freedom of speech. So I will fight you to the death for someone's right to say whatever the fuck they want. But I don't agree with what he said, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But yes, I was there. The weekend I was in New York City was the weekend that the coronavirus blew up. It was the weekend that Kobe passed away, and it was also the very weekend where Ari Shafir talked shit about Kobe dying and then everybody wanted to kill Ari. And Ari was on the show that I was at as a guest of Jessica Kirsten. And Ari, in case you don't know the story, uh, what he said was so fucking horrific um, that a lot of people out there want to see this guy t uh, six feet under. And I don't blame him. Ari took uh, something way too far he's always been an edgy comedian um you know doing bits and jokes about things that other people wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole and i think this guy was just out of his mind out of his mind when you have a whole not just country but a whole world mourning the death of one of the most influential basketball players in the history of the sport who not only passed away in a very tragic way, but eight other people lost their lives, including his daughter, Gianna. All right? No joke at any point would have been acceptable to make fun of Kobe Bryant's death. And for him to come out the day that the entire world is mourning his death and for him to talk shit about Kobe passing away and that he was happy for it, it's no wonder the guy has death threats getting called in on him. So yeah, I was in New York City for all that. Ari was supposed to headline that show I was at, and he never showed up. So, yeah, I was there for all that, people. Uh, let's see, what else? So, so yeah, Saturday, Sunday night, I went to the Comedy Cellar after I did my spots, and I went there specifically to see Will Sylvince and uh, Dave Attell. And then the Monday night was the Patrice O'Neill benefit, um, and like I just said, Louis C.K. was a special guest that came out and co-headlined it. And then uh, Bill Burr headlined it. 
and then I actually met Bill Burr. If you want to see a picture of me with Bill Burr taken in Midtown Manhattan uh, less than two weeks ago, go on to my Instagram page. Uh, my Instagram is Johnny Ares, J-O-N-N-Y, no H in Johnny. So if you want to look up my Instagram and follow me, I'll follow you right back. I follow everybody who follows me back. Johnny, J-O-N-N-Y underscore Erez, A-R-E-Z. That's J-O-N-N-Y underscore A-R-E-Z. And if you go on to my Instagram page, I just gave you my uh, username, you will see some awesome pictures I took of the New York City landscape with my uh, iPhone 11 Pro Max. And uh, you'll see a picture of me with Bill Burr. Uh, I finally got to meet and hang out with him for a bit. And uh, you'll also see a couple of pictures of the comedy seller, world famous. I dream one day that I get invited to do stand-up at the cellar and at the store in L.A. And um, you'll also see a picture of a uh, pizza place called Artistic Pizza, which was on... Uh, West 3rd, the corner of West 3rd and McDougal, right around the corner from the Comedy Cellar, Artistic Pizza. If you're in that area and you're looking for a slice, stop by Artistic Pizza and then tell me how damn good that slice of pizza was. I had two of them. It just, uh, the cheese, the crust, the sauce was just perfection. Absolute perfection. Just the perfect amount of sauce, the taste of the sauce, the, the crust wasn't too thick, wasn't too thin, wasn't doughy. It just melted in your mouth. Just absolutely fucking delicious. So, yeah, check out my Instagram for all those pictures. Uh, so what else? And then, uh, yeah, so Tuesday, so yeah, Saturday, Sunday night, Comedy Cellar. Monday night was the Patrice Benefit, and I met Bill Burr after the show um, on the street. I know there are some comedy shows uh, where the comedian will go out to the lobby after the show and he'll sign autographs and take pictures. This wasn't one of those shows. This was a theater show, not a club show. So, um, and, and I'm going to actually tell you about all the different things that had to align that night for me to meet my comedic hero, Bill Burr. I've talked about him so many times on the podcast. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Bill's and Bill's. Bill is the comedian that made a light go off in my brain saying, I want to do that. I want to do what Bill does. Uh, Dave Chappelle, I've always been a huge fan of Chappelle, always been a huge fan of Bill Hicks. Uh, so yeah, Dave Chappelle, Bill Hicks, uh, Dave Chappelle, Bill Hicks, Steve Harvey, Eddie Murphy, Rodney Dangerfield, Andrew Dice Clay, those were the guys that initially got me into the comedy. And then Bill Burr was the guy that came along in the late 90s, early 2000s that really hit me over the head. And then when he dropped his special, You People Are All the Same, in 2012, that was the one that did it for me. I said, this is what I've been born to do. And one of the reasons I love Bill so much is because Bill and I come from the same exact area of Boston, we come from extremely similar backgrounds in terms of uh, where we grew up, our fathers, how we had older brothers, which we'd fight with all the time. Uh, everything he says about everything on his podcast and on his stand-up, I've been through, I agree with. You know, 
And I'm also a musician, and I've talked about this before. Uh, two of my favorite guitarists of all time, Adam Jones from Tool. Why do I love Adam Jones so much? Because we write the same stuff. If, if I ever got the opportunities to sit in a studio with Adam Jones, with both of us plugged into amps with guitars, I think him and I could write a fucking masterpiece. That's what attracts me so much to Adam Jones and Tool, is because they write material exactly as I write. That's why I like Bill so much, because Bill and I came from the same area, the same house, the same family structure. We have the same way of thinking. Um, so yeah, that's why I relate to Bill so much. We are two people in the same. And uh, I do hope that you know before Bill gets too old and before I get too old, that one day I can open for him and actually hang out with him, because I think we'd have a fucking blast. But yeah, he was, he was cool as shit. And I'm going to go into uh, exactly how I met him. Uh, because like I said, it wasn't just a meet and greet uh, where he was signing autographs after the show. Um, a lot of different uh, stars had to align, so to speak. It was almost like fate. And uh, I'm going to talk about that in a second. All right, sorry about that. I had to pause the podcast because there was somebody at the door. I shoot him away. All right, so what was I just talking about? Okay, so uh, yes, so I went to New York City and I did stand up at my own shows at open mics, as many as I could. Um, if you go on to my Instagram, you'll also see a pretty picture of me that looks like it was taken in a studio, but it wasn't. And uh, there's writing over the picture where I thank New York City and I thank all the clubs that I performed at. So if you want to see where I performed at, you can check them out there. But uh, I performed at the Pit, the K Lounge, the Kilomet Lounge, um, the Black Hat Les, the New York Comedy Club, the Lantern on Bleecker Street, uh, the Greenwich Village Comedy Club, um, Old Man Hustle, and I already said the K Lounge. Those were the places I went to uh, and performed at almost every day. So yeah, um, let's see. How, how many? I'm trying to think. I think in... I was there Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and I left Wednesday afternoon. So I was there. I was there for five days. Arrived Saturday, left Wednesday, counting those as five days. So yeah, in the five days I was there, um, I got up on stage. I th I think it was like thirty-eight times between those eight nine different clubs I just read off. 38 times in four days I was able to get up on a stage between five and eight minutes. Do you know how many months it would take me around where I live right now to get up on stage 38 times? It would take me probably a year. And that's why I love New York City. And that's why I'm going to be eventually moving there. Just because you can get on stage multiple times a day every single day. And the more I'm getting up on stage, the better my cadence is. I'm writing new tags, writing new material. I'm in front of real paying customers who are there to laugh. It's, it, it, it's, I couldn't have learned more. I think I learned more in the five days I did stand-up two weeks ago now in New York City than I have the first six months of my career in the Boston area just because of how much you can get up in the city. It's it, it just incredible. 
Um, I was planning on moving to Los Angeles in April. That's been the plan since last year. But now that I know more and I've learned more, I'm going to stay in the Boston, Massachusetts, Western Mass, Connecticut, Rhode Island area for the next year or two. And then I'm going to move into New York City and just kill it. Spend four or five, however many years it takes me, I'll be in New York City. And then hopefully I can laterally move into L.A. But, you know, there's no shortcuts in this business. But, you know, for me to jump right from the Boston area after only doing this for six months right into Los Angeles, I would be setting myself up for failure. Not saying you can't start out in L.A., especially if you live in L.A., of course, if you live in L.A., what are you going to do? Start off in New York? You're going to, no, you're going to start off in your hometown. So I'm not saying that you can't start your career in L.A. and make it. But if you're starting in some other part of the country, you know, L.A. is like the last stop. L.A. is where you move when you've made it as a comedian or an, or an entertainer. But, you know, it, typically the path is wherever you're from, then you get a, a good following, you get a good act going, you've been doing it for a couple, two, three, handful of years, then you can move into the New York City area, do it there five, ten years, and then if you make it, then you can go out to L.A. But to just skip right from where I am to go to L.A., I think I'd be setting myself up for failure. So if you've ever been to my production company slash comedy troops uh, Facebook page, Reality Drip, it says we're based in Los Angeles, and that's not entirely a lie. That's where I was heading, but I'm going to need to change that because uh, we're not coming to Los Angeles quite yet, even though I'm, to be honest with you, it's more of a money thing. Um, if I had loads and loads of money and time on my hands, I might actually skip New York City and move right to L.A., even though I think I would be setting myself up for failure only because I am not a fan of winter. I am not a fan of cold weather. I am not a fan of snow. And I've had to deal with winters the better part of 38 years. There's only been three winters that I haven't lived in the Northeast. And... Um, I miss it. I miss being able to wear a t-shirt in friggin' February. Not where I live, bro. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah. I, I'm i in love with comedy. I'm in love with New York City. If you're a stand-up comedian just starting off, you got to take a trip to New York City and hit every open mic you can. And I guarantee you'll be in love with it. It was unlike anything I've ever done. And I, I thought I was in love with stand-up before I went to New York City. And now that I'm back home from doing it in New York City, I am even more in love with this, with this career or project, whatever you want to call it. All right, so what else interesting happened while I was there? Um, I had great sets. Um, the shows that I went to see were freaking awesome. Like I said, I got to meet Bill Burr. Uh, some of the other stuff I wrote down that was interesting about the city. Uh, my hotel that I stayed at was, I think it was on the corner of 9th and West 57th. So it was in the, it was like right on the border of like Hell's Kitchen, Times Square, the theater district of Manhattan. Um, and 
I did a lot of walking. I took a lot of Ubers, a lot of Ubers. I think in the four days I was there, I took something like 23 Uber rides and a handful of Lyft rides. But that was mostly to go uh, into Brooklyn or Queens or down into like the West Village area. But if I had to go anywhere in Midtown, I just walked it, even if it was a mile away. And my point about this is, is in all the walking that I did around Midtown Manhattan, I didn't come across anybody uh, offering drugs or, or soliciting prostitution. I didn't come across anybody um, begging for money. I didn't come across anyone who was homeless. There was no trash. Uh, it was, I didn't get harassed by anybody which was unlike other trips I've taken to New York City. However, any time I went down into lower Manhattan, especially the village, the West Village area, I was berated. I mean, I couldn't even get both legs out of the Uber. And I was being asked, hey, man, can you spare a cigarette? Nope, sorry, don't smoke. Hey, man, can you spare a dollar? Nope, sorry, I don't have any change on me. I really didn't. I don't carry cash. Um, so, yeah, I... Before I could even step out of the Uber in the West Village, I was being hit up by panhandlers asking for money or cigarettes. Um, two minutes later, I was approached by two separate people in the matter of two minutes. Uh, both of them offered, uh, hey, man, you want to buy any weed, any H, any heroin? Uh, uh, what did they offer? They had weed, heroin, and Coke on them. Two separate guys asked asked me if I wanted to buy heroin, coke, or weed in the West Village on top of being berated by people for cigarettes, even though I don't smoke, and people asking for money. And then after the show, I was approached by two women who were soliciting prostitution. So yes, four days of walking all around Midtown Manhattan, and I wasn't approached by anybody for any of those things. But literally in the first two minutes, I stepped out of the Uber that very first night in the West Village, I was I was solicited for prostitution. I was I was offered drugs by multiple drug dealers, and I was being hit up by every other person asking for money or if I could spare a, a, a smoke, even though I wasn't smoking. So that was pretty. It was, it was weird. I mean, like I said, four days and all the walking I did, nobody bugged me in Midtown. For anything wasn't offered drugs sex uh asked for money nothing but the second i stepped into the west village it was just one after another after another after another after another so yeah that was uh definitely interesting um i had one of the best slices of pizza i've ever had if you like pizza like i do and if you're ever in the west village you got to try artistic pizza on third um, the corner of Third and McDougal, right around the corner from the Comedy Cellar, is a place called Pizza. Uh, the slices there were fucking incredible. Um, I saw the coolest hotel I've ever seen, and when I go back to the city in April, I'm going to be staying there. And if you are going into New York City and you're looking for a place to stay, check this hotel out. It is the coolest concept, I, I guess, hotel, or I don't even know what you'd call it. I've never seen anything like it, from the way you check in and check out, to how the rooms are laid out, to the features that they have in these rooms, and then the price point these rooms are at are, are fucking reasonable. The name of the hotel is called Yotel, Y-O-T-E-L. If you've never heard of it or seen of this 
Hotel. Look it up online. Y-O-T-E-L. Yotel. Um, it was located in Midtown. And uh, when I go back to the city in April, that's where I'm staying. Uh, check it out online and tell me that you wouldn't want to stay there. And look at how much it is to stay there. It's not that much money. You're going to spend 150 bucks a night um, unless you're staying at a Roach Motel in Manhattan. Okay? 150 bucks a night for a decent hotel in Midtown is nothing. Nothing. It's like the low point, price point. <clears throat> so if you're looking for a place to stay in New York City that is not like your cookie-cutter hotel usual experience, check out Yotel. That's the only place I'm going to stay every time I go back to the city. Um, what else? Uh, the police sirens in New York City have changed. Um, since I was in the city last... The police department and uh, the fire trucks and even some of the ambulances use these new style of sirens that you can not only, not only can you hear them better because they're very loud and it's a tone unlike anything I've ever heard. These sirens don't sound like your typical American police sirens. They don't even sound like the type of sirens you would hear over in Europe, like the eener and eener. Uh, I think they're called growlers. These sirens are extremely distinct sound. They're ten times louder than your standard American, uh, you know, emergency vehicle siren, and they use a much lower frequency. And they're also the sound is also pumped through subwoofers. So because there's so much traffic, and people on bikes and pedestrians just all the time everywhere throughout the city and there's emergency vehicles that have to get through they had to come up with a new siren that you could not only hear better but that you could feel because you got so many people with their faces planted into their phones while they're walking and so many people that have earbuds in or headphones in that you can't hear sirens and uh these sirens are so loud and they're so unique and you can actually feel them they 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 actually put out a sound pressure wave that people can actually feel. So if you got your headphones blasting and you got your face planted in your iPhone and you're crossing a street, if there's a cop coming with his siren on, you're actually going to feel, you actually feel it in your chest, the sound of it. And then you look up and you get the fuck out of the way. Um, that was different because when I first got to the city, um, I didn't know that the police were using those new sirens. So when I first heard that new siren, I was like, what the fuck is that? Crazy. If you want to hear what they sound like, go on to uh, YouTube and type in like New York City new police siren and you'll get to check it out. It's a crazy sound. Um, did it, did it, did it, did it, did it, what else? All right. So I told you about the Patrice show. I told you that Louis C.K. made a surprise appearance. Um, so I'm going to tell you how I met Billy fucking Bear, my idol. Um, I've told you this before. Um, you know, I do know some comics who are pretty famous, who are close friends with Bill. Um, but I'm too nice of a guy and too shy to hit up one of these comics I know to be like, hey, can you introduce me to Bill? You know, I feel like an idiot doing that. So I'm just, I'm just not that kind of person. And now that Bill and I are in the same field, you know, I don't want to come across like some rabid fan, you know, because, you know, now I'm doing it too and I have fans and I get it. You know, some people are psychos. So 
I've always wanted to meet Bill because he's been such a big influence on me. I came close to meeting him um, when I saw him in Saugus, Mass. back in November of 2019. Um, that's the night I met his friend that he brought with him, uh, Wayne uh, Praviti, who him and I are friends to this day. Um, so anyways, here's, here's how it worked out. And this is why I kind of call it uh, a miracle. Uh, you know, just planets had to align for me to meet Bill. Because, like I said, this wasn't uh, one of those meet and greets where after the show all the comedians come out in the lobby and shake hands and that kind of shit. There are certain shows like that, especially at the smaller clubs, where that kind of event will happen. But this wasn't one of these kind of, you know, shows, okay? So here's what happened. Um... I mean, I think it was fate just because of, of how it happened. But here's how it happened. I was walking to the show from my hotel, and I got the address off of, I don't know, Google. So um, I was walking there, and it told me to go to 56th Street. So I went to the 56th Street entrance, and I went right through the door and there was and, and and I probably should have known I was in the wrong place to start with because there wasn't a whole mob of people out front. It turns out I had actually went in the stage door, which was on fifty sixth street on fifty on fifty fifth street was the actual venue main entrance under the marquee. But the directions I had took me to the 56th Street entrance, which was actually the stage entrance. So by accident, I knew where the stage door was. And even crazier is when I went into the stage door, there was a security guard sitting behind a desk. And I was like, yeah, is this the New York City Center? He's like, yeah. I'm like, I'm here for the show. And he's like, okay, are you performing or are you here to attend? And a huge part of me wanted to be like, uh, yeah, I'm performing. Because I wonder if I actually told the dude if I was performing, if he would have just let me continue right through security, right to the fucking, you know, right down to the green rooms. That would have been amazing. But I'm, I'm too honest of a person. I'm not going to tell the dude I'm fucking performing, and then he figures out I'm not, and then I get thrown out into the street. So I was honest. I'm like, yo, I'm not performing. I'm just attending. He's like, all right. Uh, the entrance is actually one street over. So I had went to the show with the wrong directions, but now I knew where the stage door for the New York City Center was. So I walked out of the, out of the stage door and I went over to 55th Street, and that's where there was like 500 people on the street trying to get into the show. Uh, there was 2,300 people there. It was sold out. So I went into the show, enjoyed the show, got out of the show, and I was walking down 55th with the plan of just going back to my hotel room because now it was like 10.30, 11 o'clock at night. I wasn't aware that there was an after party at the stand that I could have went to and actually hung out with all the comedians on the bill, especially considering I know Jessica Kirsten. Um but I didn't even think of it. So I was just walking back to the hotel. And as I got to, I think, 8th Ave or whatever, I thought to myself, shit, the fucking stage door entrance is literally right around the corner. 
And I'm like, I wonder if I just go hang out on the street by the stage door, if any of these comics will just spill out. And I could maybe talk to Roy Wood Jr. or Paul Verzi or meet Bill or fucking, you know, Louis C.K., any of them. So I said, fuck it, you know. It's New York City. I'm walking, you know. I just had to literally go right around a corner. So the show got out. I was walking back to the hotel. I got the bright idea to go back to that stage door that I went in by accident. And um, I leaned up against the wall, and I could tell that a couple other people had the same idea. There was like three other people... Uh, that were like holding posters or something. And and you could just tell that they kind of had the same idea I did, but I played it off much more cool. I didn't have a Bill Burr poster or a book or anything for him to sign. I just wanted to meet the guy and take a picture with him. So uh, I leaned up against the wall and acted like I just belonged there. And a couple people came out of the door, nobody I recognized. And then all of a sudden... Um, there's a guy walking down the street on his cell phone, like he's trying to find somebody. And I recognized the guy and it was Bill Burr's road manager. I can't think of his name, but, um, if, if you follow Bill Burr and you saw, um, some of the videos he, he released of when he's filmed his special at the Royal Albert Hall, the last one that came out, Paper Tiger, uh, Bill's road manager is in a lot of those videos. Um, so that's where I recognized him from. And then I saw his road manager look through the glass door and point like he was trying to find Bill. And then literally a second later, there's Bill standing right fucking next to me. Literally right next to me. My fucking idol. The guy who got me into comedy. Standing right next to me. And I was super cool. I said, hey, Bill, uh, can I get a picture with you? And he's like, yeah, sure. And um, I pulled out my phone. We posed for a picture. And then after, after I took the picture, um, he stood right next to me, shoulder to shoulder, didn't move. And he just started asking me questions, how I, how I liked the show. Um, did they allow cell phones in the venue? I guess he didn't know that everybody had to put their cell phones in bags. And then he took out his cell phone. Um, and he started texting somebody because he was trying to find somebody. So he was asking me questions about the cell service and how the show was and if I liked it. And just like we were two buddies. And uh, his road manager uh, saw the other handful of people that were out there. And he told them to get back and give us a minute. So that was like, holy shit. So Bill and I just stood there shoulder to shoulder. Uh, and he's talking to me while he's texting somebody. I can see his phone in you know, plain view. And, um, you know, I answered his questions. I didn't want to be a pest. I didn't want to linger. I, you know, I wasn't about to stand there and, you know, tell him how much I loved him. You know, uh, we took the picture. He asked me the questions. I answered his questions politely. Um, I said, thanks again, Bill. I shook his hand again, and I walked down the street. Um, so, yeah, I think I played it off as about as cool as I could for, you know, meeting my hero you know, my comedy hero, you know, I, I didn't go, oh my God, it's Bill. Oh my God, Bill, I love you so much. Oh my God, oh my God. You know, you know, I was just like, hey man, what's up? Hey, can I get a picture real quick? Hey, you know, it, it was just, it, it, it was that cool. So, you know, I, I'm a real firm believer in fate and that everything happens for a reason. And I don't know if it's my mother that passed away that made that happen for me because she knew before she passed away how much Bill meant to me. Um, but there was a lot of things that had to align. I'm sure all 2,300 people that were at that show would have loved to have shook hands or taken a picture with Bill Burr 
but I happened to know where the stage door was. And I don't think a lot of people knew where the stage door was. I found it completely by accident. And even after the show, I didn't initially have the idea to even go to the stage door and wait for those guys to come out. I thought about it last second, and I was like, eh, ah, fuck it, I'll do it. You know what I'm saying? So just so many things had to align in order for me to meet Bill. And it's not like I was standing out in the cold for two hours waiting for him to come out. I, I had been standing there for more than... For, for no more than two minutes before I saw his road manager, and then he just walked right out, right next to me, while his road manager told everybody else to get back and give us a minute. And I almost think Bill recognized me. Um, you know, I've sent Bill private messages over the years uh, through social media, you know, my pictures all over the internet now and stuff, because I'm a comedian as well. So I think he actually recognized me. We've never formally met we are mutual friends with a lot of the same people now, like Jessica. Um, so I think he actually did recognize me. And that's why he, you know, I think treated me more like uh, like an equal than like a than some rabid fan that was there to meet him. And I also came off really cool, too. It's not like I was like, hey, Bill, hey, Bill, a picture. I was just, I, would, I, I, I played it super cool. And, you know, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I just feel like, uh, you know, it was just meant to be. Like the way it just, you know, all happened. And then, you know, how fucking cool he was to me. I don't know. It's just unbelievable. Um, So what else? What else? What else? What else? What else? What else? So yeah, meeting Bill Burr was uh, probably the highlight of the trip. Because like I said a thousand times before, the guy is my idol. And I don't know if you guys have any idol. Do you guys like music or actors or actresses? Are there any famous people out there that you've always looked up to that you'd love to meet? Well, the number one guy for me, considering I'm a comedian, and he is too, was Bill Burr. And the fact that I got to meet him uh, when I wasn't even expecting it, wasn't planning on it, didn't know if I would ever get to meet the man or shake his hand. And so just to have it happen the way it did, I look at that shit as fate. Like my mother made that happen for me. Or somebody up there was looking out for me. Because too many, too many things had to align that night in order for me to be at the right place at the right time in the right mindset to meet Bill. And I did. And uh, I thank my lucky stars that I was able to do that. And um, so, yeah. Uh, Amtrak is the worst. That's what I have written down here. Has anybody ever taken a fucking Amtrak? It, it was so bad. Uh, normally, when I travel to New York City, I will drive from Massachusetts somewhere into New York State or Connecticut and I will park at a Metro North rail station and then take the Metro North, you know, right from Hudson, New York or that area, right through the subway system into Grand Central. And it costs next to nothing. Um, That's the way I should have did it. But this time I decided to take an actual Amtrak train. There's a train station right down the street from my apartment. Um, but yeah, taking an Amtrak, uh, was really no different than the fucking subway. It was actually worse than the subway. Okay. So the Amtrak train makes a lot of stops when it doesn't need to, it has to stop and back up at certain stops. Um, the bathroom facilities aboard those trains are one step below a sandy can at a at like fucking Woodstock. 
Um, I don't think they ever changed the toilet water out. There was no soap in the bathrooms. There was no running water in the bathrooms. Uh, there was no Wi-Fi on the fucking train. That was broken. Just, I don't know. Just, there was no customer service. The trains were old. The bathrooms were disgusting. The train constantly stopped and jerked around and all this other shit. It was terrible. It was not a very glorious way to travel. I would have rather drove the whole way into the city, even though New York City traffic is fucking bonkers. Uh, so yeah, Amtrak is the fucking worst. I, I have nothing but bad things to say about Amtrak. The ticket cost almost as much as a fucking plane would have, and the train was just trash. The customer service was trash. Uh, just the fucking bathrooms were just the most disgusting fucking things I've ever seen. Just awful. I do not suggest anyone ever taking a fucking Amtrak. I really don't. Uh, what else do I have written down here? You all know that I came home with the flu. I'm still kind of on the tail end of the flu, and that's why there hasn't been a podcast. What else? I have written down New York comedy, New York City comedy crowds laugh at anything slash everything. I felt funnier than I ever have anywhere else I performed. And after watching 20 to 25 different comics at the cellar and at the stand and at the New York City comedy club and at the Gotham, I feel I can make it. That's what I have written down here. Um, like you guys know, I'm a young comic. I've only been doing this for six months. I've only had two paying shows. I'm just starting to get guest spots and opening spots on more local shows around here. But it takes time, okay? There's no fast track to the top here. You look at anybody who's on top of the stand-up game, like right now. Like, like fucking Bill Burr. It's 2020. The guy started stand-up in 1992. 28 years? Do you think he's paid his dues after 28 years? That's what it takes most comics people. You know, Burr's been killing it since like 2010, 2012. But in 2020, the guy is probably the biggest comic right now on the planet. And he's been doing it 28 years. I'm six months into my career. So... The whole point of that is that, uh, you know, when you're doing an, an open mic outside of a big city, you run the risk of sometimes having to perform in front of two people or maybe just all the other comics. And there's no people there except the fucking bartender and, and like your fellow comics, in which case that's like the toughest crowd to perform to because other comics, they don't a lot of them don't like to laugh at other people's stuff because it's like a show of like submission or some shit. It's like a pissing contest. I've talked about that before too. I don't get why that is. I don't care if the comic is old or new or inexperienced or experienced. If they're funny, I'll laugh at them, whether it's an open mic or not. I don't have any problem supporting other comics. If they're funny, I'll laugh. Um, but I think I told you about... Uh, the last podcast I did before I left for the city, I did the worst open mic I had uh, the night before, where there was nobody there, and the people that were there weren't in a laughing mood. And I thought I had some of the best new material I've ever come across, or, or I've ever done, and nobody laughed. It was just crickets. People were looking at me like I had three heads and just stepped off a fucking spaceship, you know? It was crazy. I know those nights happen, and they happen a lot, and I've had bad nights on stage where the crowd wasn't into me or I wasn't into it, but this was like the worst. Everybody who went up that night ate, uh, 
major dick. And people have quit because of nights like that. As if it isn't hard enough to have enough, you know, courage to get up on a stage with a microphone and talk about controversial stuff and try to make people laugh. As if that doesn't take enough courage enough. Imagine going up there and thinking you have great material and that you're funny and people are looking at you like you just stepped off of a fucking spaceship. Literally. Or or like I'm Sasquatch or something, you know? People looking at me like, who the fuck is this guy? You know, nothing will make you feel unfunnier. And um, I really feel like the crowds around the area that I live in right now are really tough to please. A lot of people are uptight in this area. There's a lot of liberals in this area that, you know, and I, I guess I have no problem with liberals, but I don't know. In a lot of ways, I think liberals and the Democrats are the ones that are actually tearing this country apart. They're the ones that are spreading racism, spreading misinformation about Trump and about a lot of other fucking shit. It's the media and the extremists that are just pouring misinformation into all of our heads and a lot of us get triggered by the shit we hear even though the shit we hear might not even be true or it could be half truth. There's a lot of shit out there, but this area that I live in is just overrun with bleeding heart liberals, a very big LGBTQ community, and everybody's on pins and needles. And, you know, I've talked about this. I've, I think I talked about it on my first or second podcast ever, that this is a very stuffy, uptight area that I live in. And I've talked about this before. If you were to put Bill Burr in a costume or Dave Chappelle in a costume, anybody, and they were to do one of these open mics that I do, and they came with their best material, I don't think people would laugh. It's that tough of a crowd. So I'm working and starting out in a very uptight area. And I just gave you plenty of reasons why. Although most of the shows and most of the mics I've done, I've gotten pretty damn good you know responses from the crowd a lot of chuckles sometimes i don't think a lot of people laughed and then i'll obviously i record every one of my shows i'll come home and i'll listen to it and i'll be like shit a lot more people were laughing than i thought there were i guess it's just because i'm just not paying attention as much and i need to be because if you have a lot of people laughing, you kind of want to pause and let that laughter die down. You don't want to go immediately into your next line while people are still laughing because then they're not going to be able to hear your next line. See what I'm saying? So that's stuff that you learn and you work out. It's called a cadence or a pace, knowing when to stop, when not to stop, when stuff's working, when it's not working, you know, turning the joke around on itself when it's going bad. All this shit you learn, and you learn it in time, and you learn it through practice. But what I'm trying to say is that this area of Massachusetts that I've started off in is very uptight when it comes to comedy, and it's very tough to make these crowds laugh, okay? So some of the exact same new material that bombed so hard here, I went and took down to New York City, and I fucking murdered with it. Murdered. Which is why testing out material to see if it's good enough to do at a show at an open mic is not good. Um, I've had seasoned comics tell me, test out your material to see if it's good or not at an open mic. And I actually disagree with that. 
okay? Because a prime example, I just told you guys, uh, two days or one day before I left for New York City, I had the worst show I ever had. It was an open mic. Nobody was there, but the people who were there, nobody laughed, even though I thought I came with some great fucking material. Nobody laughed. Crickets the entire night. But that's how everybody did. I, I don't know what was the problem that night with people, but nobody felt like laughing. You know what I'm saying? And then I took that same material down to New York City and I fucking murdered with it. I murdered with it. Okay? So that just goes to show you, you know, you can't judge your comedy or your bits or your material by how one audience reacts. Because if I had given up on those bits because nobody laughed at them at my last open mic, then those would have been lost forever. But I continued to do them for a new audience in a new city, and it fucking killed. So I'm planning on doing a lot of those bits again this week when I go back to that same open mic, and we'll see if anyone laughs this time. So I guess it's it's not a good test of whether or not you're ready or whether your material is good or not at certain open mics because you can totally bomb with the same material in one city, and then the next night you're in a different city, and everybody loves it. So that's my point, I guess, is, you know, around here where I'm stuck doing open mics until I can make it into New York City, um, sometimes the crowds are just brutal. They just don't want to laugh. And I don't get why they even come to a show if they're not going to laugh. Um, and I'm not trying to say I'm the funniest guy, but literally every comic that went up that night at that show, they bombed too. Nobody wanted to laugh that night. Nobody, no, no matter what you had to say. So that's why I'm saying if you would, you know, fucking, you know, disguise Bill Burr, disguise Dave Chappelle, put him in a disguise and have him come do the exact same open mic I do with their best material, they're not going to get laughs. But the difference was is that the New York City comedy crowds laughed at fucking everything. Every single bit I did, either the whole room was on the floor crying or half the room laughed and the rest were smiling. That's like the worst that I did. And then at the comedy shows that I went to as a fan or just to learn, like, you know, at the Comedy Cellar Saturday and Sunday night, uh, at the New York City Center on, on, that, uh, on Monday night, and then at the stand on Tuesday night when I saw all those other comics that are a lot bigger than me, some of them killed. Well, actually, they all killed. They all killed. The, the the fucking crowds went wild for them. But did I... Th I don't know. I laugh at shit, whether it's funny or not. Just because I'm now a comic, I'm not going to refuse to laugh at another comic's material because that like shows like weakness somehow. and Like a pissing contest. I'm not that way. So some of the comics I saw that were pretty big and pretty successful in New York City that were making the crowds laugh so hard, they didn't make me even smile. And then there were other comics that were literally had me on the floor in tears with my stomach hurting. Can you see the, can you see the difference? So that's a couple of the things I've learned is that you really can't judge how good your material is or how funny you are if you have a bad show in a bad area because you can do that same material in a different city the next night and it works and I got proof of that 
through my own material doing it. And then the other thing I realized is that there are a lot of successful comics that are in New York City being paid pretty good money that I don't find to be funny at all. And some of the jokes they're telling and people are laughing at, I'm like, really? Like, you know, you know what I'm saying? I, I, I don't know. I, I don't mean to talk shit, but like, you know, there are some jokes, I guess, that not everyone's going to find funny. I think there's some material that's lazy, like, like Donald Trump. Donald Trump is such an easy target to make fun of. Because the guy is such a fucking buffoon. I don't care if you voted for him or you love him or you hate him. You can't say the guy doesn't act like a buffoon half the time. So he's an extremely easy target to write jokes about. And I feel like a lot of people are trumped out. Whether you like Trump or you hate Trump, I think everybody's tired of hearing Trump's name, whether it has to do with comedy or not. But there's still people that are really riding a lot of Trump material. And I find that to be lazy. Because I think even a non-comedian could probably come up with some great Trump jokes and go on stage and kill and do great. But to me, that's lazy. That's lazy material. And I saw a lot of comics that uh, are, are really big that weekend in New York City that are, make, that are getting paid a lot of money and getting spots at the best places to do comedy in the world. And I really didn't find them to be funny whatsoever. And it, it, and it just got me thinking, like, holy shit. If that person with that weak material is here at the Comedy Cellar getting paid all this money at one of the most famous locations in the world, I think I'm going to be all right. Because I feel as though I'm a pretty damn good comedy writer. And you're not going to ever hear or see me release any of my bits to YouTube. Maybe if I have a special that comes out great, people will like react to it on YouTube, but I'm never going to post my stand-up on YouTube. Why? Because I want you to come see me do it. And I'm not even getting paid to do it, bro. I'm not getting paid from YouTube. I'm not getting paid a lot, if any money, from any of these open mics or any of these shows I'm being invited to, you know, to, to do guest spots on. I'm not getting paid, bro. I have... A, I have two jobs I work. I have two full-time jobs that I do. And at night when I'm not working, I'm doing comedy. And hopefully, eventually, stand-up will turn into an actual paying career for me. But you gotta start off somewhere. And you're just not gonna jump right into a comedy career, you know, making millions of dollars or even a six-figure salary from, from the get-go. It happens to one out of every billion comics. You know, there is no fast track to get to being a multi-millionaire famous comic. It does, it, it just, it cannot happen overnight, and it doesn't. It's impossible. Maybe a handful of musicians have done it with, you know, overnight one-hit wonders or whatever. But comedy, it's, it's, it's a different game. All right, I've talked for about an hour and three minutes, and. Uh, I have a couple more things I wanted to talk about, but uh, maybe I should save them. Ah, fuck it. I'm going to talk about it. <clears throat> Sorry. I talked about Ari Shafir a little bit. Um, Kobe Bryant passed away the Sunday that I was in New York. And 
the very next day, I believe on Monday, comedian Ari Shafir took to social media and posted a comment and a video of himself um, saying some very mean shit about Kobe. Like he was happy that Kobe had died. And a lot of those videos, and he was trending on Twitter because so many people wanted to kill him. So yeah, basically Ari Shafir is a semi-famous comic. Um, I don't particularly care for him. I think he's rode on the coattails of Joe Rogan his whole career, kind of like Brian Redband. No one knew who the fuck Brian Redband is. I don't think Brian Redband is funny. I don't think he was a good producer of Joe Rogan's show. I think the only reason why Brian Redband is even semi-famous and has some kind of a career was because of Joe Rogan. Like, nobody knows who Johnny Ayres is, but if I was to all of a sudden be Joe Rogan's sidekick, or I'm all of a sudden producing Bill Burr's podcast, or I'm all of a sudden opening for Bill, I would then become fucking famous probably overnight, okay? This is kind of what Ari Shafir has done. Ari has been riding off of Joe Rogan's success for many years. I've never been an Ari fan. The coolest thing Ari ever did was Ari had a three... Ari at the Comedy Cellar a handful of years ago... No, at the Comedy Store, not the Cellar. At Ari a handful of years ago at the Comedy Store in L.A., sat down for three hours with all the open mic comedians that were trying to get in to the one open mic hour that they have every Monday night at the comedy store. And Ari took three out of three hours out of his time to sit down with all these new comics and give them advice for three hours. And that's on YouTube. I thought that was very cool of Ari to take three hours out of his time to sit down with new comics and let somebody record the audio as a kind of a textbook to help answer a lot of questions you have when you are starting out a comedy career. So that was cool. So I've always respected Ari. I respect every comedian because I know what it takes and how many years it takes and how much blood, sweat, and tears you go through to make it. I get it. So I respect Ari, but I've never been a fan of his comedy. Okay? And I'm not a fan of what Ari said about the nine people, including Kobe Bryant, that died on that helicopter a few weeks ago. What he said was not funny, it was extremely insensitive, and it came at a time when the whole world was mourning his death. Kobe meant a lot to a lot of fucking people, okay? So Ari really pissed off a lot of people. And, um, yeah, I guess I just had to comment on it, uh, because Ari said those things while I was in New York City, and Ari came into New York City that very next night in the exact show I was at at the stand that Tuesday night as the guest of Jessica Kirsten. Ari was supposed to headline that show. And that was the exact show you might have heard on the news that he was canceled out of because the club got so many uh, death threats that if they let Ari in there that they were going to do something. So, yeah. So yeah, Ari has gone underground since that day. And, uh, you know, if you look up Ari Shafir on Twitter right now or go to trending, he might still be trending. There are People aren't going to forget that shit, bro. And he was supposed to record a special, I think, it, like a day or two ago in the city. I don't know if that even happened. Because I'm sure there's people out there that are still looking to fuck with him. But yeah, 
Um, I'm not going to repeat what he said about Kobe. I'm not going to play the audio. I'm not going to give the guy that much attention. I just wanted to comment on it as a fellow comic. Um, I will defend somebody's right to freedom of, of speech. But I can't say I agree with what he said or how he said it. There was nothing joking. There was nothing funny about him saying he was glad Kobe passed away along with Kobe's dog. I mean, how fucking insensitive can you be? You know? And maybe he did it because he likes that kind of negative press and attention. You know, all press is good press, they say, even if you insult an entire, you know, planet, which is what he did. You know? Um, If that's the kind of attention that the guy wants, you know, if he really needs to be... I don't know. It's like a little kid, right? If a little kid isn't getting their way or isn't getting enough attention, the kid's going to do something bad. It might take like a flashlight I have in my hand right now that weighs like two pounds. And, and, the, it, and the kid might throw a fucking temper tantrum and throw the flashlight across the room knowing it's a no-no. But the kid wants the attention because it feels like it's not getting enough. So it's going to get your attention by doing something that it knows is wrong, but it's that starved for attention. And I think that's kind of how Ari's always been. Ari is starved for attention. And he was so starved for attention that he had to talk shit about nine people passing away that the whole planet was mourning because he was so desperate for attention. And that's just sad, man. It's sad. Um, Ari is friends with Burt Kreischer. He's friends with Joe Rogan. And I've heard both Joe and Burt comment on what Ari said. And they're like, yeah, no, we don't support him. We don't support that shit. There's taken shit to the edge and beyond it. And then there's what Ari said and did. You know, it's not like cancel culture where somebody did a, you know, a race joke or a joke about gay, or something like that, and then people got offended. What he said, there was no joke to it, there was no punchline, it was just awful, what he said. It was way beyond this cancel culture, the social justice warrior, or the stuff that normally upsets people. What he did and what he said in that video was just way beyond crossing the line. To the point where even his good friends, his Hollywood friends that 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 can't fuck up their career, um, are like, no, we don't. You know that you know, he he went fucking overboard. And yeah, the guy's gotten so many death threats, and so many people want to murder him that the guy has literally disappeared off the face of the earth. And I don't know if he'll ever pop up again. Uh, he hasn't been tweeting or any of that shit. He's been hiding, and I don't blame him. I don't blame him. If, uh, you know, I don't want to cause harm to Ari, but honest to God, if Ari was, if if Ari's face was about three feet from mine right now, I would literally smack him across it. But that's about as far as I'll go. So yes, New York City comedy crowds were fucking awesome. Because they laughed at all my shit. But they also laughed at some shit I didn't think was very funny either. So I, I can't give myself too big of a pat on the back. And then the last thing I wanted to talk about, as I know we're getting uh, past an hour here, is the Netflix documentary, Don't Fuck With Cats. Um, 
somebody told me about it, said it was a documentary about some weirdo that pretty much became a serial killer right in front of the internet's eyes. I watched that, I think, the night before I left for New York City. It's only three episodes. I think it took me like three hours to watch. Um, I highly suggest it. I really do. Um, it's... I don't know. I guess you have to be a fan of... I don't really know. Um, I don't even know how to explain it. It, it absolutely sickened me what this kid did and everything that was in the story but it was also like riveting too it was like it was like a horror story but it was real uh even the people that lived this experience for real that were interviewed in this documentary said i don't think hollywood could have come up with this in a movie because it was that grotesque it was that fucked up it was that psychologically just screwy that even Hollywood couldn't have thought of what this kid did for a movie. And there's a documentary about it called Don't Fuck With Cats. It's on Netflix. If you can handle watching a real person become a psychopath serial killer in front of your own eyes, told through real-life video and testimony and all that shit, if you can handle that, then watch it. Some people can't handle it. This dude starts off fucking with cats, and that's why I think they call the documentary Don't Fuck With Cats. This guy was torturing and murdering kittens on the internet. And that's the first, that's the tip of the iceberg in what this kid did before he eventually graduated to murder. And it was these people that saw him fucking with cats on the internet, animal rights activists, that actually helped track this guy down and eventually get him caught. So if you can't handle kittens, um, they actually don't show the kid fully killing the cats, but this shit is out there on the dark web. This was a real killer who eventually graduated from cats to fucking with real people in as grotesque of a manner. But the whole story behind who this kid is, what he was doing, how he was doing it, and just how messed up his mind is, is unlike anything I've ever seen. Like I said, I don't think Hollywood could have came up with it. It is that fucking wild. You know, this is a straight-up Jeffrey Dahmer type of just, just lunatic that literally became a serial killer right in front of the internet's eyes. And it, it tells the story. Uh, they don't, like I said, fully show him murdering cats, but they show enough. And as God is my witness, even though it was disturbing, and I literally felt sick to my stomach at one point. At a couple different points watching this documentary, I was literally sick to my stomach. Because it was so fucking abhorrent what this guy was doing. Just, I, I don't even know if that's the right word for it. There isn't a word to describe how sick this fucking kid was to do what he did to cats, and then he graduated on to human beings. And I don't know. It was one of those documentaries where I was literally on the edge of my seat from the time I pressed go or play to the time 
it ended. I was on the edge of my seat. I didn't get up to go to the bathroom to get a drink, nothing. I was on the edge of my seat with my jaw on the floor, sick to my stomach. So I was engaged. I was interested in it, but I was also sickened by it. And if that sounds like anything you would enjoy watching, I highly suggest you check out Don't Fuck With Cats. And that's if you can stomach it. I was able to stomach it. I was disturbed by what I saw. I can't believe evil like that really exists in the real world. But at the same time, it was fascinating. Um, so yeah, I guess that's all I got, people. Um, I apologize for my raspy voice. Like I said, I'm just getting over the flu. But I am starting to feel better. And I appreciate everybody reaching out to me who did reach out to me. Fuck, I mean, I got friends, bro. I got good friends that have not even hit me up since I've been back in town from New York City. But yet I got fans who don't know me from halfway around the world asking if I'm okay. So you people know who you are. If you've been a fan of mine, if you're a subscriber, if you're a supporter, I cannot tell you in words how much it means to me that you've been supporting me and that you do continue to support me. Um... I can't remember if I've talked about this, but I I do have another show coming up, a local show here in Western Mass. I am going to be at uh, Captain Jimmy's, Captain Jimmy's Restaurant and Distillery in Agawam, Massachusetts on Thursday, February 20th at 8 p.m. Tickets are $15 in advance, uh, and they are available online at eventbrite.com. Uh the show is being hosted by Ezra Pryor. It's got comedian uh, Colin James on the bill, Todd Therian, Trisha D'Arnfornio, and my buddy, a comics comic, the best dude I've met who's been helping me out tremendously. He's the one that invited me to do a guest opening spot on this show, Artie Rob. Uh, I love you, brother. Can't thank you enough. Him and Tim Lovett have been the two people uh, that I look up to locally that have been helping me out the most with shows, guest spots, advice, words of wisdom. Uh, I cannot thank you two enough. Every comic has a mentor or two that takes them under their wing and helps them out. And these two guys are the guys who have been helping me out. And I cannot thank you two enough. So huge shout out, shout out to Artie Rob and Tim Lovett in comedy as a weapon for everything you guys have done so far for my career. I love you both tremendously. So yes, I will be doing a five-minute opening guest spot at Captain Jimmy's February 20th in Aguam, Massachusetts. Really looking forward to that. Uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in, and I thank you for sticking around while I've been um, out of town and sick for the last few weeks. Now that I've recorded another podcast, uh, we should be getting back into a regular swing of things with uh, one or two at least a week. Uh, considering this is a Monday, I will probably do another one uh, later this week, probably Thursday or Friday. So we will talk to you then. Thanks for tuning in. Love you. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I'm Johnny Garris. Everybody. All right, that's it, everyone. Nothing to see here. 
Just some people who are really, really high. Aww. Aww. Can't shoot him. 